What did I just say? Sound like the usual mindless, boring, getting to know you chit chat. And we welcome you into episode 155 of the Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. My name is Greg Frank. Going to be joined in just a minute by Mike Niemer, the eRenewable CEO, as he was the man in charge on this episode as he caught up with Andy Weathers the guest on this episode 155 so we're going to run that interview with mike and andy in just a minute some fun little biking stuff there at the end and so uh, definitely be sure to listen to it all in terms of what andy does and also a little hobby of his own on the side and it'll be a fun chat but before we air that chat we do want to check in with e-renewable coo and neemer and neemer here coo of e-renewable we know today whether you're a public company private equity, or privately held company, ESG and sustainability are important to your company. At eRenewable, we can help you achieve some of those goals. If you have any questions or need any assistance with regards to reaching your sustainability goals, please visit us at eRenewable.com to learn more. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Hi, everybody. I'm here today with Andy Weathers, president of ARM alternative energy. Andy, how are you today? I'm well, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us in the studio today. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have a fascinating talk on renewable natural gas. Andy and his company have been deeply involved in it, and you're going to learn a lot today. And so without any further ado, Andy Weathers, tell us a little bit about yourself and about ARM alternative energy. Absolutely. And, and thank you, Mike, for having me today. really do appreciate the time. Uh, I've spent the last 25 years in the commodity markets, largely the energy commodity space. Uh, started trading crude oil about 25 years ago, natural gas, refined products, uh, weather derivatives, and a variety of other uh, commodities that are, are heavily related to weather and energy consumption. And uh, that has led me down the path of in working in, in several areas of the energy business, which today is in the renewable natural gas space. Arm Energy was founded in 2004 as a hedge advisory business. And since 2004, we've grown into uh, several verticals, which would be advisory, trading and marketing, midstream, and then renewable developments. And I manage the renewable business. And really the reason we got into that business is simply because the supply demand imbalance is so significant that it was very important to control supply. And that's what led us to the renewable natural gas business. Well, you know, in the renewable natural gas business, there's a lot of different factors involved to create that product. Yes. You've got different kinds of feedstocks. These feedstocks lead to different carbon intensities. You've got this, you've got that. Why don't you tell our listeners of the Green Insider here a little bit about the mechanics behind what gets you through a renewable natural gas project? Certainly. So there, there's quite a few factors to consider when you're evaluating uh, developing a project. And the first thing you want to look at is what is your feedstock supply? And what do I mean by that? Feedstock supply is your input to your facility, which will ultimately create renewable natural gas. Now, I think it's really important to point out that renewable natural gas is created from a renewable source, something like garbage, manure, 
food, biomass, things of that nature. And it is conditioned and treated and goes into a pipeline and is consumed exactly like hydrocarbon natural gas, which we utilize and have utilized for hundreds of years. So it's identical. Okay, so that's, I think, an important point to make. Now, when you're thinking about a project, we look at the feedstock sources, and the reason for that is there are various governmental programs which create incentive programs. Um, essentially, there is the EPA, um, the uh, Renewable Fuels Standard, and then in California, Oregon, and as of January 1st of 24, Washington, they have a low carbon fuel standard program. And essentially those are credits that are awarded to renewable natural gas producers if their fuel is used in transportation, either in those states or federally. So when you think about it, you can start to identify your cost centers and your revenue centers. So your feedstock is typically a cost center if you're using a manure base. If you're using organics or something that would be from a landfill diversion program, you're actually going to get paid to take that feedstock. So those are kind of important things to think about. On the other side or the flip side of that is you want to look at your feedstock to understand what credits you can avail yourself to. And then the other really important um, component is carbon intensity, which you, you mentioned um, at, at, at the beginning of the um, question. And carbon intensity is a metric which quantifies how many greenhouse gases, how many tons of greenhouse gases you're removing from the atmosphere by developing that asset. And that's very critical because that number of tons dictates how many credits you get in the LCFS program. Whereas the federal program, the number of credits you get is based on the number of MMBTUs. Simple as that, huh? Simple as that. There you go. Now, when you talk about the variety of different feedstocks, mm -hmm. if I, it's my understanding, not all feedstocks deliver the same carbon intensity or CI score in the renewable natural gas. Is that correct? Yeah, so it's, it's not necessarily the feedstock per se. It's the process which is associated with that feedstock. And what I mean by that is when you have a dairy farm, for example, dairy farm that is a confined animal feeding operation, or basically it's large stalls where the animals come and feed, so they spend the majority of their time feeding in a barn. And then that manure is swept, either scraped or by water drive, into a lagoon. And in that lagoon, it's basically water and manure, and it's emitting an immense amount of methane into the atmosphere, okay? So because it is so concentrated, you can very effectively reduce that methane escape. And therefore, you're removing many, many, many tons of greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Whereas a landfill is, it's a much larger area. And the amount of methane per square foot is smaller than it would be relative to, um, to a dairy farm. So it's all about how much GHG you can remove from the atmosphere. Now, what that leads to is dairy farms tend to have much lower CIs. And to, to kind of put that in perspective, CI scores are like golf. The lower the score, the better. And a zero is essentially you are not 
contributing or removing any greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And so many people think, wow, a zero, that's amazing. And it is amazing. However, when you think about a landfill, you're gonna get to about a plus 45. Now, plus 45 is attractive relative to traditional natural gas, which is about a plus 79. But when you think about food waste, you're gonna be anywhere from zero to minus 60. When you talk about dairies, you're gonna be minus 100 to minus 700 CI. Now, I know those numbers are very broad, but, but it, it's a great example of how dirty, and I'm gonna put quotes around it, um, a dairy operation is and how clean you can actually get it. So the amount of impact you can have is very material. And you know, when you're talking about the manure being brought forward into the into the pit and mm -hmm. it's emitting all that uh, methane going up into the air. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, some of the listeners that listened to our RSG email or a podcast before remembered that the methane into the air creates 84 times more carbon than carbon itself in the first 20 years. In That's the first correct. 20 years, yes. So, Andy, when you're talking about the methane in that manure pit. By reducing that methane significantly, you're then going to have a lower CI score. Thus, you're helping your company's carbon footprint tremendously. Is that correct? Yes. No, that's exactly right, Mike. And, and what we're seeing is, you know, when you look at Fortune 500 companies, there is a very long list of companies that have made pledges by 2050 to be carbon neutral or net zero. And how does that happen? Well, there's a lot of things that have to be done, and depending what your industry is, it can be very challenging. There are some industries that are relatively easy to, to decarbonize, and there's some that are really difficult to decarbonize. Um, at the end of the day, we have to look at all of the pieces of the puzzle every step of the way and understand where we can decarbonize. Renewable natural gas is a, is a great example of the ability to decarbonize, it's a drop-in fuel, essentially. You don't have to change your facility at all to utilize and consume renewable natural gas relative to traditional natural gas that's being delivered to your facility today. So that's a wonderful thing. The main difference is you can reduce your carbon footprint. And if you're buying some of this dairy type or organic food type of, of RNG, you can have a negative score, which would offset other aspects of your operation. And, you know, this is probably a topic for another podcast, but you brought up net zero by 2050. Yeah. Then there's a conversation, net zero versus real zero. Right. Okay, so there's two different things. Probably time at another conversation, like I said, to have, because that's True. a whole other conversation we can go into, which would even cover greenwashing that's popular now, yep. both good and bad. Yeah, and, and the uh, upcoming SEC rules, which are going to affect all public companies in the United States and uh, all the companies that are dealing with those public companies because they're gonna be required to report. And that is, that's, a, that's a pretty deep rabbit hole that we could go down, Mike. It is. Maybe that is the topic for another podcast. It is, and I know you recently went to DC for a, yep. for a meeting. Is there anything that you learned there that might be appropriate this podcast versus the next one that we're gonna do on real versus net? Yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. The, the focus of the conversation was natural gas and emissions. And so the, the conversation was very heavily focused on methane intensity. 
which is the metric that is very commonly used for responsibly sourced gas or uh, what's often called certified gas. And what that means is somebody will bring in a third party and they will certify your system from wellhead to midstream and say, okay, you have this amount of natural gas escaping from your system and your, you know, your environmental practices are of X standard. And it kind of looks across your, your company and gives you a report card. Um, and, and that's really important. The, the biggest issue that I heard and that we discussed in this meeting was methane intensity is one metric. Carbon intensity is another metric. So carbon intensity and methane intensity do have a relationship. But most people can't make that connection. They don't know what the formula is to say, okay, my methane intensity is X, so what's my carbon footprint? And basically where the conversation evolved to is, and there were several large utilities in the room that are burdened and have to report their GHG footprint. And so they're looking at all these things, methane intensity, carbon intensity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I posed the question, wouldn't it make sense to utilize a single standard to understand what your emissions footprint looks like? i.e. carbon intensity. And the utilities, both of the utilities that were in the room, um, it was a resounding yes. That would make their life much easier. Because if you were to take carbon intensity and make that the currency for um, essentially hedging and quantifying your greenhouse gas exposure, then that's something that has the ability to really grow as a market. So today we have voluntary carbon, we have obligatory markets like the Reggie in the Northeast, we've got the LCFS program, the Low Carbon Fuel Standard program in California, Oregon, and Washington. You've got RECs, Renewable Electricity Credits, you've got all these different programs. Again, some are obligated, and some are voluntary. And if we could kind of come to this common language, which I think carbon intensity could address many of those issues, that could be pretty valuable. And I think it would create some transparency for, for everyone involved. Well, you know, if we could come up with some standardization within this sustainability space that everybody's been looking for, They'd quit saying it's like the wild, wild west out there. But for right now, it is kind of wild because there's no standards in that's, place. That's, you're exactly right, Mike. And, and so with no standards in place, with people wanting to reach net zero, with all that we've talked about today, going green and being sustainable doesn't fit everybody's budget. So people that aren't – it's not mandatory for their company to do it, but yet people say, you should do it. Or they want to do it. Or they want to do it. Yeah. Because they just want to help the earth, right? That's right. What's your views on why should people buy RNG voluntarily? Yeah. That's, you know, that's a, a question that I get very frequently, Mike. And it's not always easy to answer. The, the short answer is, depending on what your process is and, and how much gas you consume, um, you know, it might be a very impactful way to reduce your footprint and not create 
an incredible burden on your business. And what I mean by that is, you know, today, as we all know, natural gas has been extremely volatile, basically since Uri, winter storm Uri um, last February. And then you look at what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, and they've cut off a significant amount of energy supply to Europe, which has then burdened the US LNG market. We're exporting about 12 BCF a day. And so that's created an incredible amount of volatility, A, and B, just the price level has increased by about 100% from a year ago. And what that means is now all of a sudden the gap between brown gas or traditional hydrocarbon natural gas and renewable natural gas has closed significantly that delta is not nearly as big as it once was, A. B, if it is a relatively small cost center for you, or importantly, if your clients are requesting a product which has some green element to it, then that's also very valuable. I've got some clients that tell me that they can charge about a 10% premium pretty consistently if they can demonstrate the green credentials associated with their product. So you might pay a little bit more, but you also could potentially charge a little bit more depending on what your industry is. Well, you know, you've compared brown gas to green gas, so to speak, right? Yep. But there's a big difference between the scale of di the different developments. You've got the renewable developments that are much smaller than the traditional brown developments. Talk about the differences between those. Yeah, that's a really important factor. So today in the United States, um, we produce about 100 BCF billion cubic feet of gas a day. Um, in the renewable- Of brown gas, right? Of brown gas. Okay. That is traditional hydrocarbon extracted from beneath the Earth's crust. And essentially in the renewable natural gas space, which is made from landfills, dairies, uh, food waste, biomass, and, and things of that nature, we're about a 175,000 a day market. So 175,000 versus 100 billion. It's tiny. And the, one of the reasons for that is each facility is extremely small, especially when you compare it to the scale of some of these energy producing fields. So a traditional or a, t a typical RNG asset will go produce anywhere from 200 MCF a day to about 5,000 MCF a day. Now, to put that in perspective, you'll have single wells in the Permian Basin, for example, that will produce 50,000, 70,000. They'll produce an incredible amount of, of energy relative to these assets. And the reason for that is you have your feedstocks. If it's a landfill, you only have so much garbage there. And basically it's the decomposition of the organics and the other materials in the landfill, which creates the methane. And that takes time. Just like the natural gas that's in the ground, dinosaurs, you know, turned into to natural gas and oil, right? And so, you know, that takes a long time, not nearly as long, but there's just not the same amount of scale. So each facility is much smaller. Well, and think about on the dairy farm, there, there's only so much manure, right? That's right. And so it's not as simple as, well, let's just build a larger facility. It's not about that. That feedstock is the key to everything That's to exactly. determine whether it's economical to build 
and if you can even get your two or two or three hundred MMBTUs a day. That's exactly right. In, in the dairy farm space, you need several thousand head, call it 2,500 at the very smallest, but more likely you need about 5,000 head to justify building a facility. And there's a couple ways you can do it. It could be 5,000 head at a single location, or you could do it like a hub and spoke design if you have several dairies in close proximity to each other, and then you can aggregate all the manure to one location, you can do it that way. Now, there are some farms that are much larger, you know, 100,000 head or even more, but those are much more rare than the 1,500 head dairies that are scattered across the country. Then, if I may add one more thing that's really important is you might have a 10,000 head dairy, which would be a really nice producing asset, but you're 20 miles from a pipeline. And the cost to build that pipeline negates, in many cases, the economics of that 10,000 head dairy. Before we go on to my real next question, I thought of one while you were talking there. If we look at all 50 states, are there two or three states that have a lot more RNG facilities than others just because of the nature of their, what they, their, the state with what they grow? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, and yes, so think about the heavy concentration of dairies, and it is California, and then the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, um, Ohio. Um, there's a lot of digesters in both of those states. Uh, in the Northeast and then down through the Southeast, there's also a concentration because of hog farms and those sorts of uh, agricultural assets. Uh, in California, you also have quite a bit of biomass from nutshells and things of that nature. And about 20 years ago, it was quite popular to build power plants that utilize this woody biomass to then generate power because there was incentive programs through a, a, a PPA structure um, that was a long-term fixed-price electricity contract. So you could take that uh, woody biomass, you basically combust it in the absence of oxygen, and then you put it into an electrical uh, generation facility, and you put the power on the grid. Well, there you go. You know, we've talked about net zero, real zero, you know, your different feedstocks and how it creates a different carbon intensity. But in the scheme of the conversation all around the world in sustainability, everybody wants to know how does it all fit into the circular economy? That's the buzzword, circular economy, circular economy. Talk about how that fits, the RNG fits in that circular economy. Yeah, that's, that's it, it, it really fits well. And um, what do I mean by that? You are taking um, waste. You know, the, the, there's a saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And I think that's really what an RNG asset embraces. You take uh, cow manure, something that can be used as fertilizer. However, states have a limit on how much you can spread. So manure can turn into a problem for them. Or landfills. Right now you've got eight states that have landfill diversion programs, and the landfills are, are, are getting full. Like we've got a problem with garbage in this country. So what can we do with it? to make it something that's valuable. Manure, garbage, food, whatever it is, you can take those items and utilize them as your feedstock. Put them into an anaerobic digester, digester and turn that into renewable natural gas. So you're creating something of value which will give us energy security 
and reduce greenhouse gases, as well as deal with this waste product. So those are all really helpful, right? And that's kind of, you're taking a part of the circle there, but then what happens? You've got on the backside of that digester, you've got some byproducts. You've got what's referred to as affluent water. It's this kind of nasty water that is the result of the, the digester. The digester is like a stomach, right? It's a biological, it's a little science project. You put garbage in or you put manure in, you put the bugs in, the bugs eat the feedstock and release methane, okay? But then there's the byproduct is this affluent water. And what do you do with that? Depending on your feedstock type, there's several things you can do with it. You can turn it into bedding for the cows, i.e. digestate, or you can take that water and essentially filter it, screen it, create an organic fertilizer. Organic fertilizer then gets utilized on crops we have a fertilizer shortage, I think, coming our way in the next decade or 15 years. So that helps increase food security. And then you can do a couple of things with that digestate. Like I said, you could take it back to the barn and the animals will bet on it. Or you can put it into a pyrolyzer, turn it into biochar. And biochar is a soil amendment, which helps improve the health of soil and it is a permanent source of carbon sequestration. So you introduce biochar to the soil, you plant a cover crop, and it starts immediately reducing CO2 in the atmosphere. So what you've done is you've taken manure, you've then produced renewable natural gas, which gives us energy security. You've potentially produced fertilizer, organic fertilizer, which helps food security, and you cr create clean water. Not potable, but clean. Um, so you can recycle it and use it to, uh, for the water or for the animals. Um, then you've got biochar or bedding. Biochar helps reduce additional CO2 when you introduce it to the soil, and it also helps the health of the soil. So that's kind of the circularity that we look at in, in how do we extract value from every piece of the puzzle. Another thing you can do on the back of the facility, CO2 is another one of your byproducts. So basically when you make natural gas or renewable natural gas on a digester, you're getting about, you know, 60-ish percent methane. And then the remainder is CO2 and a few other little things. You can take that CO2, you can condition it, and you can do a few things with it. You can either utilize it for uh, industrial processes. You can upgrade it, clean it up, and use it for food processes, or you can even clean it further. And there's one facility that's been certified in the United States where you can use it in beverage, beverage grade CO2 from a renewable natural gas anaerobic digester. Unbelievable. Yeah. You answered the question on my circular economy. <laughs> very circular and yep. very economics, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as President Andy Weathers with Arm Alternative Energy. And uh, I'm going to go off script here a little bit, Andy. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm standing in the room here in the ESPN studios with a world champion biker. That's true. Please tell us, <laughs> tell us about that. Um, He's turning red, everybody. Yeah, that, that, yes. Um, was not expecting that, Mike. Uh, that's correct. So uh, a velodrome is a... A bicycle track. It's like a NASCAR track. It's an oval. 
It's banked 45 degrees in the turns, and they're generally about 250 meters in length. And so I race my bicycle on a velodrome. And uh, this year, the world championships were in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, kind of fate and luck came together with preparation. And, and I won a couple of world championships. Well, congratulations, my friend. Thank you, Mike. Proud to know you. Real, we've been friends for a long yes. time now. Thank you for joining us thank here you in the studio. Me. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to us on The Green Insider, powered by E-Renewable. Please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcast from. From Mike Niemer, Andy Weathers, this is The Green Insider, and thanks. Have a great day.